This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley, and today we are talking about healthy neighborhoods. Our guests are from the Good Samaritan Health Center. We have Veronica Squires, who is the Chief Administrative Officer, and you've brought with you Brianna Lathrop, and the two of you ladies have written a book about how our neighborhoods are doing the exact opposite. They're not keeping us healthy, they're making us sick. Welcome. Thank you, thank you so much for having us. So now, how did you, Veronica, how did you two get into this work? Well, it takes us back a little more than a decade, and I was actually a student at Emory University at the time, and very much involved in a parachurch ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which focuses a lot on issues of social justice and racial reconciliation and caring about the marginalized. And that's also happened to be the group where I met my husband. And so we were really struck by these themes of living out your Christian faith in a very practical way. So upon graduation from Emory, we decided to move into a low-income community in southwest Atlanta, very much inspired by John Perkins' work and the Christian Community Redevelopment Association, which focus on themes of relocating to communities of need, of redistribution of resources to those communities, and then racial reconciliation as a third pillar. And so we went in really excited. We were going to change the world. We were probably a little bit naive as to how difficult it would be to really restore a community that had experienced neglect over generations. And so we moved in and we were, you know, we came in with our community redevelopment training. So we started some neat programs. We were advocating with the city. We were running tutoring programs out of our home on Saturdays. But what we quickly, quickly found was that the efforts that we were making were not enough to make up for some of the major gaps in resources. So, for example, running a weekend tutoring program doesn't make up for a severe lack of resources in the local school system. So we quickly became, I would say, fairly discouraged that the issues were so much bigger and harder than we really thought that they were. And then beyond that, our own family started to show signs of illness. So uh, stress-related illness in terms of uh, psoriasis and my husband, a heart condition, um, both of us dealing with degrees of mental health issues. And so it started to beg the question for us, what is making us sick? And further, what is making our neighbors sick? What's keeping this neighborhood in a state of illness? And so it wasn't until I started working at the Good Samaritan Health Center about four years ago, that's where Brianna and I met, and we started to have conversations together, sometimes with our kids in the background watching a movie or sharing a glass of wine, about what, what are the factors that are keeping these communities in a state of languishing. And I learned through knowing Brianna, as well as getting connected with the Fulton DeKalb Hospital Authority, particularly with Dr. Carrie Norris, that there's something the population health world refers to as social determinants of health, so the factors in which we grow, live, work, play, and age that impact our life expectancy and longevity and ultimately our health. And it was in learning about that and having these long conversations with Brianna that we started to kind of put these pieces together about what makes neighborhoods sick, but then also what would make them healthier. Brianna, tell us about the Good Samaritan Health Center and what kind of work is being done there on Atlanta's west side. The Good Samaritan Health Center is a nonprofit clinic with the mission of spreading Christ's love through quality health care to those in need. 
And we operate what we call the full circle of health model, which describes a variety of services aimed at addressing whole person health. So we start with medical care, everything from preventative health services to chronic disease management, prenatal, uh, perinatal services. And we also have additional specialty services and dispensary services for medication. In addition to that, we have a dental program, which includes restorative as well as hygiene care. And then we continue on to address more than just the medical needs. We have a behavioral health center, which incorporates psychiatry and counseling. We also have a teaching kitchen and health educators where we can talk about how do we bring those healthy ideas into our homes? How do we change the way we cook, the way we eat? We also have our urban farm, which produces organic produce that is then sold at our farmer's market and made available to our community and our patients at affordable prices. And in partnership with the YMCA, we have a group fitness center and a soon-to-open standalone fitness center where the community can come and exercise. So in our approach, we talk about the social determinants of health, understanding those conditions about food access, about healthy neighborhoods, about places to exercise that are safe. We think about housing. We think about how all of these different factors influence the health of our patients. And if we're just prescribing medications and we're just making a diagnosis, then we're missing what's really ailing our communities. And so as a health center, we really want to be proactive about thinking of how do we create that full circle approach that keeps our patients and our community healthy. How active is the center? We are open six days a week, including Saturdays. Our patients have told us it's really important to have that access to weekend care. We provide about 23,000 visits a year, and we serve about 8,000 individual patients in our center. And this includes everything from your medical and dental consults to behavioral health, as well as, for example, we've served over 700 school kids in the community coming over on buses to participate in health education. They do some food. They do some fitness. They even do some flossing education. (laughs) And so just really thinking about not only that individual patient provider experience, which is important, but also how how many ways there are to think about health in our communities and how our role as healthcare providers and community members expands beyond those clinic walls. How are we getting out into the community, into the school system, and creating just more spaces where people can think about health? So Veronica told us how she came to do this work. How were you called to do this work? As a high school student, I had the pleasure of volunteering at a free clinic in my hometown in Iowa. And I remember seeing these providers and just thinking they were superheroes, that here I was hoping to find my place in the world and make a difference. And they had this skill that they could bring into the community. And so I went to school and I became a nurse practitioner. Um, I went on and also did my master's in public health and health policy. And I thought, you know, I understand the healthcare system and I can write prescriptions and I know how to diagnose and thought these are the pieces I need to make an impact. Um, And I started my career in a clinic also serving primarily under-resourced and uninsured community members and quickly found that I didn't have the whole story that I could write a prescription for an asthma inhaler, but if someone goes home to a mold-infested apartment and a landlord that's unresponsive, they're not getting better. And that I can tell my patient that it's time to start insulin, but if they have no working refrigerator, there is no way to start insulin. And so I started to think, well, either 
I got it wrong or I need to rethink my approach to healthcare. And so I did the latter. I went back to school some more <laughs> and studied social determinants of health during my doctorate and started thinking about the ways in which these determinants, everything from where people are living, and then thinking about the larger social structures that influence that. How have things like our approach to poverty, racism, historic segregation, and disadvantaging communities over others, how have these types of factors led to the disparities in access to health care and to housing and to education? And that those are the types of of conversations we need to have at a community level if we're going to end disparities between our neighborhoods and our zip codes in terms of health outcomes, that it's too late just to talk about it once we're in the clinic. Knowing that these disparities exist, Veronica, how would you characterize the impact that you all are able to have in the communities where you currently serve? Well, it's interesting. When I first came to Good Samaritan to interview for my position there, I was still living in southwest Atlanta in the community that my husband and I had moved into. And as I mentioned, feeling really discouraged that the work seemed so big and so hard and the resources so vast to really make an impact. And when I walked through the doors of Good Samaritan and looked around, it was like a light bulb went off that, oh, this is so much of the answer that's needed to really start to turn these situations around for these families and offer the care that they so desperately need but don't have access to. And so I think that Good Samaritan being physically located on the west side is making a huge difference in the lives of those patients that are coming to us. We currently see about a thousand unique individuals from the two target zip codes we focus on on the west side. These are zip codes 30318 and 30314. And we chose these zip codes because according to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, those zip codes have a 13-year life expectancy gap when compared to wealthier parts of the city, such as Buckhead. And actually, their most recent research drills down to the census tract level and then further shows that neighborhoods like Vine City and English Avenue actually have a 25-year gap. So in other words, your zip code is more predictive of your health status than your genetic code. And that is really, really staggering. So while I will say that to me, Good Sam is truly a godsend and is doing incredible work for literally thousands of people. The reason Brianna and I are here, the reason we've written this book and continue to just carry this mantle is that it's not enough. And more resources are needed. More people need health insurance. More people need safe streets. They need parks. They need safe places to live so they're not sleeping outside at night. There's so much more resources that's required to truly lift up the west side neighborhoods. But then you think about neighborhoods that are suffering all over our country. I mean, it's it's going to be a heavy lift and take political will from the very top. But I think what encourages Brianna and I is as we're out doing these events, speaking to communities, that even though what you may hear in the, in the media is sometimes a lack of civility between different people groups, what we see at the ground level is that people very much care about their neighbors. And when they hear the kind of statistics, like there's a 25-year life gap, their first question is, what can I do today to change that? That is unacceptable for that to exist in this country. And so we're very encouraged that Um, There are things individuals can do to make a difference and that people want to make a difference in their city. Tell us about this book. How Neighborhoods Make Us Sick, Restoring Health and Wellness to Our Community is a collection of our narrative 
our experiences of living and working in environments and realizing firsthand the way in which environments impact health. And then in part two, really sharing ideas about what does it look like to do things differently. One of my favorite parts of writing this book was actually interviewing local leaders, folks with really innovative, creative solutions across the U.S. about how do we think about health and employment? How do we think about housing and health? Really drilling down to what does it look like to be concerned citizens and how do we as neighbors, as teachers, as business owners, as healthcare providers, as church members, as parents, how do we engage in a way that starts to change the tide on these health disparities? And I left feeling like there, as Veronica said, that there's will, but there's also a lot of really great things happening at a local level. And I think what we do is we take those lessons and then we grow them at a national level. And this book is our stories, as well as our research, as well as what we've learned from these interviews to try to say this is important and it's painful and we need to have these discussions, but it's not hopeless. There is a way forward and there could be a different there could be a different story. We don't have to settle for the life expectancy gaps that currently exist. What did you find in asking these questions and looking at the the this, the way that we deal with health and employment or health and education? A few things. I think first that they're all interrelated. That as we went into the literature and really dove into what a lot of academia has studied, that you can see these linkages between types of employment, for example, and blood pressure. That it's not simply being employed or unemployed, that jobs that have very little control but very high demand are linked to poor behavioral health outcomes as well as higher blood pressures. And with housing, we see, again, this linkage between the ability to have housing and the quality of housing with, with lifespan and health outcomes, and that these are compounded, too. So if you're in an environment where you're born into poverty, you're in this eviction cycle of constantly being uprooted into new schools, you have poor educational outcomes as a result, then you're trying to get employment and you're working shift work and there's not much chance for mobility and you're experiencing discrimination, that all of these different factors add up and they cause stress on the body. And that while our bodies were beautifully designed to handle moments of stress, we weren't built to handle the stress that comes with the gross inequities of our current society. And so we see that it's not just that being poor makes you more likely to be sick. It's that being poor, being stressed out, being constantly worried about how you're going to eat, how you're going to survive, that that takes a physical toll on the body. And it changes our endocrine systems, makes us more likely to have diabetes. It changes our neurological systems, that we see this weathering and this aging on our physical bodies. And that's what creates these these life expectancy gaps. And so if we're fixing them in the health system, we're catching it too late. But the other thing we learned in the book is that there are local actions that each of us matter in changing this story because we vote, because we are members of PTO organizations, because we own businesses or we rent or we own houses. And that as we think about our day in and day out decisions, what if instead of just thinking, what do I need to be healthy, we say, what is the zip code that I live in or the zip code down the street that doesn't have such good outcomes? What do they need to be healthy? And would that change those decisions that we're making? 
How do you make people care about such big issue? You know, when we first shared the data from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation with our board of directors, who many of them, like you said, live in the suburbs and have very comfortable lifestyles, it didn't take much. They heard that statistic and they were really broken over that and just thought, in this country, with the kind of resources available, with the kind of resources our families have, 13 at the time the data was just saying the 13 years a 13 year gap should not should not be it shouldn't be that from one marta bus stop to the next your life expectancy differs by over a decade that's 13 less birthday party celebrations you know 13 yes less years of life and you know we got all upset about how many years smoking was taking off people's lives well what about social determinants taking off even more than that um, so we've really found that just sharing the data, which is what it is. There's research, and that's really also what we tried to put in the book, is not just our opinions, but the research that points to these findings. Um, just sharing the the data, the stories, telling a different narrative of poverty. I think that's another thing we run into, is helping people think through maybe a different story of why people get to a place of poverty or homelessness, and that what maybe has been before considered a series of just bad decisions may have a lot more to do with envir- environment, um, historical disadvantage, and some of the other things that Brianna mentioned. So we found that the conversation and getting people to care is, is really not the hard part, that when we have people here in Atlanta that have big hearts, and there's so many different great organizations doing good work. I think what we would really like to see happen is um, – not that people care more, I think they already care a lot, but to get everybody singing the same song, um, to get the nonprofits and the community development organizations and the Federal Reserve and the healthcare organizations and all these groups that are maybe operating more in silos. What if we were all singing the same song about all neighborhoods need some basic things, basic infrastructure, basic proximity to resources, basic healthcare services to be healthy and committing to that as a city? I think we could do it. In case you're just joining us, our guests are Veronica Squires and Brianna Lathrop. They come to us from the Good Samaritan Health Center, but the reason they're here is because they have written a book out of this work that they're doing, How Neighborhoods Make Us Sick, subtitled Restoring Health and Wellness to Our Communities. Brianna, you said if by the time the stress is manifesting in someone's life in one of these two zip codes, 30318 or 30314, you said we're already too late. How are you able to begin to make a difference today in those neighborhoods? Well, we make a difference with the people that are at our doors. And even though we're too late to reverse the impact of childhood poverty, perhaps, or the stress that folks have already undergone, we can help them with managing the outcome of that and continue to preserve the health that's left. But the other thing that I really see as a powerful position we have in a healthcare center is through that education and through those healthy life tools that they're then bringing home to their families, to their children, as we interact with school-age children, that we're changing the trajectory of people's lives in terms of whether it be diet changes or just thinking about those health decisions. But even more importantly, I find that a lot of what we do in our conversations is even just helping people understand the way in which their world, their environment, has impacted their health. And I think it's important for people to hear that health outcomes aren't always directly linked to health behavior, that who you are and where you came from matters. 
And that part of how we restore this is that we that we feel that, that we feel the, the, the anger that comes with knowing that some folks start out differently than others. We talk a lot about health equity, which is essentially the chance of ev- that everyone has the same opportunity to reach good health. That's not the world we live in. And so when people hear it's not just your fault, you can't just try harder or fix more things, it's freeing. There's mm-hmm. a healing that comes in saying that my narrative matters and there's a reason I've experienced what I have. And I think that gives people a new sense of hope and of power to say, okay, so if it makes sense where I'm at, what do I do about it next? And I think that's sometimes things they can do personally, but I hope, as we talk about in this book, it's also things we do at a community me- uh, level to say, we this isn't okay. So what does this mean for us as citizens, patients, providers, wherever you are on that gradient in terms of social determinants, whether you find yourself at the top or you find yourself at the bottom, or for most of us somewhere in between, our nation is only as strong as that ladder. And if the bottom falls out of the ladder, we all suffer, that we're all in this together. And so we'd, we'd all be smart to say, how do we strengthen the health of our future? How do you get businesses to invest in these communities? You work with incentives and you sit down at the table and, and you have discussions. You kind of bring everyone together and you say, this is a vision for this community. And it has to make sense. These are businesses. We have to talk about what what makes bottom line, what helps a business stay open. And it involves the community and folks that have a choice as to where to shop to say, well, I'm going to shop somewhere that keeps a local business open, or I'm going to drive five more minutes to buy my groceries down the road so that that grocery store doesn't close. I think there's been examples of this, the East Lake neighborhood in Atlanta, for example, with the Drew Charter School community was exactly that. They went to Wells Fargo, they went to Publix, places that might not have opened in the neighborhood as it started, and said, we want to build a strong neighborhood, and that means having something other than a predatory financial institution. It means having a grocery store and not just a corner shop. It means having a school that's of quality, and it means having affordable housing, and they built it. So it can be done, um, and it can it can change the face of that community, but it takes everyone being willing to take the risk and then being willing to support each other so that no one bears that risk alone. Is it your sense that this is a priority for our current city leadership? I think so. I've, I've heard um, Mayor Bottoms speak to a number of these initiatives, such as affordable housing and equity. I'm very encouraged by um, folks that she's placed in the administration over the Office of Resilience, Office of Urban Agriculture. Mario has become just a great friend and ally. Um, so, yeah, I think we're I think we're heading in a great direction. And if there's one thing our listeners can do to begin to make a difference, to help you with your work, what would that be? Find a way to invest in your community, and specifically a community near you that's one that has less resources if you live in a community that's well-resourced. And perhaps this looks like a volunteer position. Perhaps this is writing a check to that nonprofit that's really working hard. We need that to stay open. Even it's driving around and, and opening your eyes to the fact that the banks are missing or the grocery stores are missing. Maybe it's following a blog of someone that doesn't look like you, but pushing yourself to see the realities that exist in our city and then saying, where do I use my talent, my gifts, my resources, even if it's one organization, find one place to plug in and strengthen the support system.
And if our listeners are interested in more information and the statistics and the research that's in the book, How Neighborhoods Make Us Sick, how do they get a copy of the book? The book is available anywhere you buy books. Um, you can go to Amazon. You can go through our publisher, InterVarsity Press. We also have a website where we share uh, additional links to the data. So if you want to look at those life expectancy maps in a different state or different neighborhood, we also blog continually. So that's at www.letsmakehealthyneighborhoods.com. So feel free to find us there as well. Let's make healthy neighborhoods.com is where we'll find the blog. Once again, the book is How Neighborhoods Make Us Sick, Restoring Health and Wellness to Our Communities. The authors are Veronica Squires and Brianna Lathrop. Ladies, thank you so much. Thank, thank you for you. having us. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, condo 29 on Twitter or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.